Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I am not above bragging about my connections to greatness, especially when those connections come in the form of blood relations, and there is no feasible deniability. In this case, that undeniable connection is not only with an award-winning author and what we around here like to call a writer's writer, but your very own sister. She's been on the aisle before, and the amazing thing is... She's agreed to come back again. Oh, yes. But that might have less to do with my hold over her as the older sibling to do my bidding and more to do with the fact that she has a brand new book out that we are going to talk about today, right now even. But first, I suppose I should introduce her and welcome her back to the Isle of Misfits. So welcome Kathleen L. Maher, or as I like to call you, Kathy, to the Isle. Is that... Is that a formal enough introduction for you? Um, I, it's effusive, and I'm, I'm honored, and thank you for keeping my very own hammock safe in, in a sunny spot on the aisle. Um, yes, I'm we've had to show away. Yes. great to be here. We've had to show away several people, and yes, you have a spot always reserved in your name. <laughs> so, All right, so um, what's with all the books? You were like a machine, a writing machine. I believe they used to call that a typewriter. That's me. Yeah, you're like a typewriter with a literary brain. Uh, uh, well, as long as there's autocorrect in that typewriter, I'm, I'm well, maybe. No, that's a different subject because autocorrect trips me up. But anyway, I've, I've just been, I think I'm the proverbial dam that burst because on our last interview, we talked about how it, it took me 30 years to get the first one out. So now, now that the dam is broken, it's all coming out. So that's, I'm just catching up, you know, with lost time. So, okay. So it's pent up book energy is what you're talking about. And I speaking so, or yeah. just my back work. Okay. <laughs> and speaking of, uh, pent up books and, uh, title, we haven't, I don't think we've mentioned the title yet. Maybe we ought to do that. Shall I, or shall you? Oh, you go right ahead. Okay. Well, the book is called The Chaplain's Daughter. It is the second book in the Sons of the Shenandoah series. Did I get that right? Yeah. The, the first one was called The Abolitionist's Daughter. That was book one in the series. This one is, uh, like you said, The Chaplain's Daughter. And the, it, it features a young lady who, as the, the title suggests, the daughter of a chaplain who um, serves under General Stewart, which is uh, Civil War people will know, the uh, Confederate Cavalry General, the very famous General Stewart. So her father is, is a chaplain, and he's gone away to war, leaving her kind of to fend for herself, because everyone thought it was only going to be a 90-day war. So she was tucked away at, a, at a, an acquaintance's house in Richmond, Virginia, thinking, you know, he'll be, he'll be back before the season changes, and the weeks and months lead to a year. And she can't outstay her welcome, so she has to figure out how she's going to support herself. And okay. she becomes an army laundress. All right. So I'm going to dot, dot, dot right there and do the cliffhanger yeah, thing. Right? Because we need to hear more about this. But before we do, I think you know what comes next. we got to play a stupid game. You thought you were going to get away oh, yeah, without right. the stupid game. No, it's <laughs> happening. It's happening I tried. right now. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You've <laughs> got to be a little quicker to the uptake to get around me and my stupid games. So here's the deal. You're a Civil War kind of a person. You write these books about the Civil War. we got to do Gone with the Wind. I know it's not your book. It's someone else's book. But 
Your stupid game is just a little bit of trivia about Gone with the Wind. There's no wrong answers. Actually, there are wrong answers, but even if you get them wrong, there's no pressure. There's never any pressure here on the aisle, so it's all in good fun. So are you willing to play? You're not going to revoke my hammock? You can keep the hammock. I might just, you know, not dust off the whatever crawls on there. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Question number one. This is and it's multiple choice, so you have a chance, okay? First question. How much did the original Gone with the Wind, or the book, not the movie, how much did Gone with the Wind, the book, originally sell for? Was it 25 cents or, as they said back in the day, two bits? Was it $1.50 or was it $3? Oh, wow. Well, it came out obviously before the movie, which came out in 1939. I don't know the actual date that Margaret Mitchell had that come out. So I'm going to go for the mid-range answer. What was it, $1.50? That would be the mid-range, and that would be incorrect. I'm so sorry. So, But normally, well, here's, okay, so here's the thing. Okay, there's a little disclaimer here that I got from my really reliable Internet source. Because of its length, the novel sold for $3 a copy, which was 50 cents higher than most hardbound books of the day. The book itself weighed two and a half pounds just to print all that, yeah, all that paper. Yeah. So So you were half right. I guess it was, yeah. I knew it couldn't have been 25 cents because I don't think they could do the the binding for that, let alone all the other stuff that goes into it. Exactly. I just like saying Very interesting. I learned something. You learned something that day. Okay. Question number two. This has to do with names. In the early drafts of the book, Scarlett O'Hara was not Scarlett O'Hara. She had another name. Was it? I know this. I know this. All right. They wanted to name her Pansy, which is just the most awful, awful name. As awful as it is, you are absolutely right. Yes. You didn't even need the multiple choice, which shows what an authority you are. Pansy was the name. So bonus points. If you know what Melanie's other name was supposed to be. Oh, I do not. Okay, I didn't either, but I have the internet, and you could look it up right now, or I could just tell you. It was Permalia? Permalia. Huh. Who knew? Not okay. me. Not me. I'm, so, I have read that somewhere obscure years ago, but it's no longer in my Rolodex. Cool. Okay, I think I have another question perhaps, or we could just move on. I'm going to let that be your last question. Would you like to just move on? Or do you want another question? <laughs> I leave that in your capable hands. All right, I'm going to I'm going to throw a curveball at you. We're actually segueing out of the game because here's the next question. Can a jaded and broken man be God's plan to fulfill your heroine's hopes in The Chaplain's Daughter? As long as her name isn't Permalia or Pansy, I would say yes. Yes, because I don't think there's any hope for... You uh, are correct. Apologies to anyone named Permalia. It's a fine name. They're all fine names, but they're not the name of your heroine. The 19th century. Yes. So the name of your heroine. See how beautifully we're just segueing right into the next thing. The name of your heroine. Is Ellen White, the daughter of Reverend White. And do you want me to just jump back into where we were headed, or uh, I'll let you lead? Yeah, we'll jump right back in, because this is the part where I would tell you that you've won a mug, but you already have a mug because you're in the family. So, yeah, let's move right along. So we have Ellen White, daughter of the chaplain. Oh, thank you. I blush. 
I like to say they make coffee taste twice as awkward. That's their their main claim to fame. <laughs> but we're here to talk about you. And right now we're talking about Ellen White, the daughter of a chaplain who becomes a laundress. So take it away. Yes. So, so here is this, uh, I think she was about 17, maybe 18 years old, in uh, 1862. So she is... She's trying to figure out how am I going to, you know, stay afloat here because she's not welcome to stay forever in this, you know, luxurious house in Richmond. So she takes up washing laundry for, for the Army. And it's there uh, a year into the war, right after the Battle of Second Manassas, which is what the Southerners called, what us up north would have called the Second Battle of Bullhorn, that she's called upon in the middle of the night to help with the incoming wounded. And that's totally not in her wheelhouse, but she's called upon to help this man who's essentially going to bleed out if she doesn't help the surgeon. And that's who she meets the hero. So Ellen seems to be a character that shows up previous to this. She's This is not the first time your readers have met her. Am I am I right about You're that? Right. I think I'm right about that. So yeah, so what's, what's her... Yeah. Is it too early to go into her backstory? No, no. It's, it's probably a good time to discuss that and maybe even talk about the irony of the titles because they seem to indicate sons and yet they're about daughters and what's with that right right i was actually that was just what i was gonna say what is up with that yeah because sons of the shenandoah yet your title seemed to suggest as you said an identification with daughters so um you know i i'm only asking as a smart mouth sister yeah so you brought it up so we'll let's go there all right so what happens is she meets the hero, who happens to be the brother of the hero in the first book, which was the abolitionist daughter. And the hero in that book was Ethan Sharp. So she meets Gideon Sharp, who is the oldest son of Sam Sharp. And the reason the series is named after the sons of the Shenandoah is because it follows each of those sons of Sam Sharp who are from the Shenandoah Valley. And, uh, the, the books feature the romance that they have with the women that, that God brings to their lives. The series follows the men, but it follows their romances. Well, which is really interesting because, so, yeah. yeah, it's about the men, but the men and the women, you know, the, their stories intersect and intertwine. So if it's about her, it's about him. And if it's about him, it's about her. So if we are not mutually exclusive Entities. Ellen, like you were saying, uh, appears in the first book. She 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 was actually very interested in Ethan, and unfortunately, that was not recorded. She she was kind of spurned, but not through no fault of Ethan's. It was actually Ethan's twin brother Devin who kind of played some tricks. And uh, I'll, I'll let you read the book to find out about that, but. She was led to believe that there was a love interest there, and there never really was. So she reappears. I thought that poor Ellen needed her own story and to find her happily ever after. And uh, she's she has a rough start because the last thing she wants is to mess with another of Sam Sharp's sons. And here he is, All right. <laughs> lying yeah. on a, one's, one's a cop yeah. and uh, in need of, of help, and she's called upon to, to take care of him, and he wants nothing to do with her because he's lost his wife uh, in childbirth, and he has children to raise that he can't get to, and 
here she is, and the last thing he wants is a woman uh, hovering over him. So they're they're foisted together into this uh, situation that needed conflict right off the bat. That's what every good romance needs. It's an unlikely match. And that is that is uh, an important part of the, the formula, if you will. I try not to be a formulaic writer, but there are certain things that the readers expect. And yeah, well, it, it, does it works for, for Jane Austen. So yeah, so I'm thinking if it, you know if it worked for Pride and Prejudice, it can work for you. And really, I mean, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. I think a lot of real life romance begins that way. So there's a reason that we're drawn to stories like that. You know, opposites do attract, and in the end. The, the reason that is is because it's not just about being opposite. It's about complementing each other, which is a whole term that's kind of gotten hmm. lost in the, in the shuffle of, of some of our, you know, the narrative that's out there. We don't like to admit so much these days that there are differences between men and women. Um, and yet those differences are, are pretty, not just important, but they're, they're pretty necessary to complete a, a, a picture. But perhaps yes. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Well, no, actually, that, that weaves itself through the theme of, of this story. A lot of people don't, you know, they, they almost kind of cringe when you say romance because that's not real literature. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not literary fiction. It's just, you know, cheap dime novel romance, right? But it depends on the writer, and I'm not saying I'm a great writer at all, but I do okay, think that I'll there's room for... She's a great writer, yeah. everybody. <laughs> I paid her a nickel to say it, but um, there are, there is room to explore serious themes even in something as as you know casual as, as as a love story. And by the way, the purists would say love stories and romances are two different things. But just for the sake of of argument, we'll, we'll use them interchangeably here. So yeah, there is room for serious themes such as gender roles and why. Men, men are men, and women are women. And I think I just quoted an Archie Bunker song, but <laughs> oh, I think it's time to sing it. Yeah, I'll do my Edith Bunker. And you knew who you were then. Okay, I'm done. Boys were carry boys on. Yeah. Gals for gals and men for men. There we go. All right, so Maybe what were we saying? What were you saying? Out in the rinse. So there there are important reasons that gender roles work. So before I'm, you know, chased with pitchforks and torches, I just feel very strongly and passionately that we're missing something in our culture that wants to take away the uniqueness of gender and make them homogenous and cause there to be no femininity, no true masculinity, um, mislabeling true masculinity as toxic. There, there's just a lot of these buzzwords floating around in the ether. And I just feel that the medium of story can undo a lot of the toxicity in a whimsical way and in, in, in a winsome way. To just show, you know, don't we all long for a hero? Don't we all long for a kind woman who would, who would help someone in need, who's nurturing, uh, without, you know, without assigning 1950s, you know, cleaver gender roles? I think God made us unique and not same. You know, we're equal, but we don't have to be homogenous. So... It's really interesting that you say that because, okay, yeah, we nobody wants to go back to the 50s because, you know, Beaver Cleaver is not where it's at anymore. Although I do have to say the fashion was a little better, but I digress. So 
but the thing is, whether it's the 50s or going way back, you know, um, back in the day of the, the 19th century, isn't it interesting how even now we can give ourselves permission to enter into that world where the roles were a little more defined, where men were men and women were women, because that was the world that they were living in. And somehow we're allowed to kind of dwell in in that world at least long enough, you know, whether it's the the movie that we're watching or in this case, the book that we're reading and, and to accept that world. Does that make sense? Well, it does. And, you know, just going back to God's original plan for men and women, it transcends time. It transcends uh, eras and fashions and men's whims, women's whims. Yeah, it just so happens that, you know, the the Civil War, they had the beautiful hoop skirts that were very feminine, not very practical. Um, But, I mean, people look to that as almost an ideal of romance that time where, you know, chivalry seemed to be more commonplace. It, it, It seems to be an ideal. But really, it's just a, a type and shadow of, of the beauty that God created as, as man and woman to, to, like you said, I love the word, complement their roles. You know, I'm not saying women can't be strong. Of course, women can be strong. But they don't have to, you know, bench press 300 pounds to prove it. Uh, they can be strong in, in ways that maybe men would find challenging. I mean, just scientifically, they, they say women tolerate pain more, and that's convenient when it comes to giving birth <laughs> so there's all kinds of strengths but where it, where it comes in in, in the story um, let me just take a, a side step so looking at our hero Gideon Sharp a young man who has, has had military training he's a captain of artillery and when he is injured uh, he he no longer has his career he, he's laid up he, he can't you know do what he used to do and his other, you know, the other part of his background is his first wife has died in childbirth and he's grieving. So he has a broken body, he has a broken heart, and other things happen that affect him even deeper that he he has no fight left and he has to regain the warrior inside him. So one of the story questions that might come up, why can't Ellen inspire his fight? Why does it come later in the book? Well, I believe that men impart masculinity to other men. I think women can pray, women can encourage, women can be who they are, but I don't think the masculine soul can be imparted through a woman. So that's probably really getting controversial. <laughs> well, okay, are, all right, but are, let's let's land here. All right, but but let's not apologize for it because you're you're making a case that you know maybe some people aren't going to track with it. But I think part of the reason that that we have lost track of that, so to speak, is mm-hmm. because I think we've created the, these caricatures of what it means to be masculine and feminine. And you kind of alluded to that, you know, well, to be feminine means you have to wear big impractical hoop skirts or, you know, things that are beautiful, but that are painful and that suppress your, you know, your movement or whatever, you know. So we, mm-hmm. we have these ideas that, that are very uh, superficial of what it means to be feminine. And to be a man, you have to bench press 300 pounds. And I think when those are, when that's the narrative, then no wonder we've rejected it. But I think there's a baby and there's a bathwater there. And what I hear you talking about is 
is let's let's hold on to the baby, all right? Maybe some of this bathwater has to go, but let's not throw the whole right. thing out. Let's not let's not get carried away, folks. Yeah, that's absolutely right. With with uh, power comes responsibility. So in the biblical model of the home, if the father has more authority, he also has more responsibility. So some of the criticism that we've seen in our culture through shows like uh, The Simpsons, where it shows that you know Homer is, is just a donut-eating, slobbering idiot who pushes buttons uh, at work and doesn't have a whole lot of intelligence or responsibility, some of that has come fairly. And, and you know, we, we have have seen a generation or two abdicate their responsibility to be leaders both in the home and in culture and model uh, the kind of leadership and values that would honor God and be conducive to uh, a healthy culture. They're not, you know, chest-beating cavemen who drag their women by the hair. They're men who lay down their lives for the women that they love. So we, we may not have seen that level of sacrificial leadership for a couple generations. Maybe we're War Two was the last we saw. It's, it's like that song. I remember there was a popular song in the late '80s, early '90s. Where have all the cowboys gone? And, and it references John Wayne and mm-hmm. Prairie Sods. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a longing among women for that sort of leadership, and that sort of romantic hero. You know, I'm not saying that we all need to be rescued. I think God is our rescuer, and I don't look to any man. <laughs> Nancy and I. I'll just speak for her for a moment. And I think she'll agree. We were raised by an extremely strong woman. She was a woman who had to raise five children without the help of a man because the man in her life, our father, abdicated his responsibility. And she took it up. She had to work in a maximum security prison and go into the inmate population to earn her living. And I mean, in terms of mental and emotional and character strength, I can't think of anybody that I could reference that was stronger than my mother, our mother. But she she wasn't a hard woman. She wasn't an uber-feminist. She believed in these roles. And even though she wasn't allowed to, to live them out to the fullest extent with, with a husband that would lay down his life for her, she understood the kind of demurity and winsomeness that served her children and served her God in a sacrificial way, in a, in a uh, what is that dirty word, in a submissive way. Maybe yeah, you want to well, add hey, to that. That's my mother you're talking about. And you know what? I wholeheartedly agree with that characterization of her. That's exactly right. And what you're talking about is you're talking about strength. And there is mm-hmm. there is masculine strength and there is feminine strength. And, and the thing is, mm-hmm. I think maybe a lot of us are confused because we've, we've tried to amalgamate the you know ma- masculine and feminine strength into just this generic strength that is neither masculine nor feminine or some kind of you know uh, hybrid of of both of them which in in a sense weakens both of them because it denies yeah. the it, it denies them their uniqueness well, the simpering female that needs to be rescued. That's where I got on this train. And let me just add, this is where I was going. Our mother taught us not to meet a man. And she was right to do that. She taught us that we could achieve whatever we wanted to because her source of strength was God. 
And she imparted that first, that God was our Father. Psalm 68, it says, God is the husband to, uh, he's the judge to the widow and, and, and the father to the uh, fatherless. In Isaiah 54, it says something about the ma- your maker being your husband. So she raised us to believe that God was our all in all. And no, we didn't need a man. We didn't need that kind of protection. But when it's available, it's also a beautiful thing. And she gave us the kind of strength that said, you can do all things in Christ. And I think true femininity frees us in that truth. We can we can do all things in Christ. Right. Because when we're when we're truly feminine, and I'll speak for the men out there, not being a man myself, uh, some of my best friends are men, but uh, I think the essence of both is is not this unhealthy codependent, you know, dependency, mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. being free to offer who we are unapologetically. And mm. beca- and 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 the weird irony in all that is we do need that. I do need men to be who they are and they need me to be who I am because we each need we need what the other has. You know, we need each other. Just as people, we need each other. Well, I think of two of your former guests. I think of John Eldridge and Stacey Eldridge. They talk about how a woman is free to be alluring. When when she has a sense of confidence and safety, she's free to be alluring and captivating. And that is the essence of femininity to me. And the essence of masculinity is being an initiator, being someone who can go get it and, and lead and uh, not be passive, not uh, wait for something to happen, but to go make it happen. And I'm not saying women can't, of course, but there's something about that leadership that speaks to the masculine soul. So going back to Gideon, he's lost almost all of this. He, he's um, broken body, broken heart, and the worst insult, without giving away too much of the plot, is he has father issues and he's back under his father's roof. And they, they don't uh, get along very well. So he feels very um, vulnerable, probably depleted, um, maybe emasculated in some degree. So <clears throat> along comes the chaplain's daughter. Yes, and right. that's where people need to get your book and find out how it all goes down. Mm. So well, that's, yeah, another beautiful segue that just fell right into our lap. So let's talk about that because I understand you know, the book is, it is available right now, right this very moment as we speak. Tell us, how can people get a hold of this book? My books are available on Amazon. Um, they, My series is self-published. I'm a hybrid author, which means I am both indie and traditionally published. The Son of the Shenandoah series are indie, so they're available both on Kindle and uh, as a print on Amazon. Okay, so look it up on Amazon. You'll find it there. And I know the, those are not your own only titles. You have you have a couple other titles out there. So as long as we're here, why don't, you, why don't you tell us about those? Yeah. Well, thank you. So I also have two novellas that were traditionally published by Barber Books. They're in collections. One is in the Victorian Christmas Brides collection, which came out this past fall for this past Christmas season. And I have one coming it's never up. too early to think fall. about Christmas. <laughs> I'll be in a second. Barber collection that comes out, uh, I believe, in October, and it's uh, it features school teachers. So, uh, 
school teacher romances, and mine will be set in 1840s uh, New York, just just north of New York City in Westchester County. And it's at the very beginning of what they call common school, so the first form of public school. I, I think I think readers will enjoy it. It's it's a little bit different. So the the book will be called Lessons on Love, and my novella will be called Something Old, Something New. You heard it here, folks. So stay tuned for that. Um, if you've never read a work by Kathleen L. Maher, uh, I, you know, I got to tell you, I am a harsh critic. Yes, I'm a sister, but I'm also a harsh critic. She's a writer's writer. That's what we like to say, um, meaning that she writes, her stories are beautiful um, and, and she writes masterfully. So if you're, if you're into beautiful writing, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Thank you for hanging out with us on the aisle. Your hammock, it is a fixture here. It's never going anywhere. Well, it's an honor and a privilege, Nancy. Thank you. Okay, so grab a pen, because here are all the ways you can get in touch with Kathleen L. Maher. She's on Amazon. She's on BookBub. Yes, that's a thing. I looked it up. She's on Facebook. She's on Twitter. She's on Instagram. Oh, and we didn't even talk about the fact that she's an artist as well. Uh Uh-huh. And a good one at that. So if you'd like to check out her artwork, you can find her on Facebook at Autumn Acre Art Studio. I highly recommend that as well. And you can follow us here on isleofmisfits.com. That's I-S-L-E of misfits.com where you get more podcasts and blog posts and who knows what other fun stuff. And it's, it's a place where we own our awkward, love our fellow misfits, and look for beauty and truth everywhere. And we need you here doing all of the above with us. Oh, yes, we do. Rearrange me here.